From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Thomas Chatterton Williams is an author. You have uh, written about race issues for a while. Uh, You've been living in Paris, and you've always considered yourself a black man, correct? That's right. You married a white woman, then you gave birth to this blonde, blue-eyed daughter, and suddenly everything changed? Everything changed and nothing changed at all. Um, But what changed was my belief in um, strict racial boundaries and categories that can possibly make sense when the physical presence of my daughter in my life kind of thrust the fiction of of race into my consciousness for the first time. And and in light of the fact that I grew up in a household with a with a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mother and a and a and a black father. In the uh, forward of your book, which is called Self-Portrait in Black and White, you say that you wanted to go through the book without mentioning words like black, white, uh, Latino. Really? Well, our, we create our reality through the language that we use. It's very difficult to step outside of our linguistic conventions and try to describe an objective reality without um, reinforcing the biases that are inherent in the words we choose. So by using black with, without quotation marks around it, or using white um, without quotation marks around the word, it makes it seem as though those words have some kind of reality, which the whole project of the book is to, is to, is to throw into question. So it's a very tricky thing, um, but, but, but stepping outside of language is one, or, or, or using language in a more subversive way is one of the first um, steps, I think, in, in, in terms of unlearning race. Okay, so describe for me, because you, you talk about it in the, uh, in the book, what it felt like to look at your daughter for the first time. It felt a little bit, I mean, it was exhilarating. I was a new father. I here was this baby. She was healthy. I was in love with her. And I was also full of um, something that felt like fear. Uh, and the fear was that I had um, done something that had permanently, or if nothing's permanent with, with matters of, of physical appearance, I guess. But uh, I had changed uh, the way that a line of people looked. I had changed, uh, quote-unquote, the race of... Uh, of my father's family. Um, I was full of the fear that in some type of like Oedipal way, um, I had metaphorically slept with my white mother and killed my black father. Yikes. That's a heavy burden to bear. I mean, maybe that's a little bit, uh, <laughs> I, it, some people would call that melodramatic, but I mean, um, I had very much grown up with the understanding that uh, blackness was an either or proposition. Race was an either or proposition. And, um, and, and that my children would be mixed like me, they, and, and, yeah. and that all black people were to some degree mixed. But uh, the presence of my daughter, um, what, what kind of black person was I if I could have a daughter that looked like this? And what does race mean in the first place if this white-looking child could be, you know, a fifth sub-Saharan African descendant? These were the questions that were somehow yeah. racing through my mind that night in Paris. Well, I've never seen your, your child in person, but I've seen the pictures. And, but you would, mm-hmm. you would describe her as... There's no way anybody would look at her and say she had any black blood in her. Is that what you're saying? Most people do not, although other people that come from mixed backgrounds um, sometimes can spot that she must have uh, some African ancestry. So my wife was flying without me once from Paris to New York, and there was a Martinican flight attendant who looked at her and just saw the curl in the hair or something and said, 
oh, but she's, she's black, isn't she? And my wife was astonished because white people, I don't think there's ever been a white person we've met that has picked up on that. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that America is unique in the way it classifies race. In America, the That's tradition right. has been one drop of blood and you're black. In other cultures, it's usually either you're all black or you're white. So explain that to me. Well, um, America is a place that had chattel slavery within its own national borders, you know, um, and being black was being unfree. So it was also never inheriting property. So the idea of white purity very much comes out of, uh, out of this system, and that, was not, uh, that didn't exist in European society. So the French don't have this kind of obsession with um, blood purity um, in the same way. They have other things. They're obsessed with national origins or they're obsessed with class. But the idea that um, very few French people I've ever met can understand um, not only why my daughter would simply be called black, but why even I would be simply called black. Yeah. Um, and in other societies that had slavery, you know, in Brazil, for example, it's exactly the opposite. A drop of um, white blood makes a person not black. Yeah. And, and the reason, so what you point out is the reason that uh, we adopted the one-drop system in America was to uh, to avoid uh, property owners having to split up their property among all the the children they fathered with slaves. I mean, that's one of the main reasons, because in the colonies, in certain colonies, it had started out that um, a child's um, racial designation was determined by the race of the father. Um, and then that was switched for property reasons to the status being determined by the race of the mother. So if you were born to a slave mother, you were always a slave regardless of who your father was. But that wasn't always the case. Yeah. Okay, so after having had this epiphany uh, upon the birth of your daughter, uh, you argue in the book that race is we've, – we've always been told that race is a construct, but, but you're saying that uh, uh, we've got to be rid of it, and yet at the same time you acknowledge how difficult that's, that's going to be. So what, what steps have you taken uh, besides writing this book that uh, lead you to believe that we actually could <laughs> stop using race as an identifier? Well, one thing I've done is I've, I've really, I'm, I'm really committed to changing um, the language that I use when I, so one thing you can do is you can say, you don't say you're black or you're white, but you would say, you know, you would have a much more specific um, self-conception. You would say maybe your, your, your mother is from a certain, her family is from a certain region of Italy and your father's family is from, a, you know, Bavaria or something like mm-hmm. that. Or you, maybe you would identify yourself not just... That's really rude you, you should say that because you know nothing about me. And uh, my parentage is, in fact, Italian and German. So good for you. <laughs> is it really? I had yeah. no idea when I said yeah. that. Wow. <laughs> you might say something that's much more specific like that. And then on another level, you would say something that's much more general. You would say, and racially, I'm a member of the human race, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I think that people laugh at these things, but, but that's, a, that's a much better way of describing yourself than in this kind of monoracial um, whiteness that, that conflates uh, Italian experiences with, with uh, Albanian experiences, with Russian experiences, with French experiences, um, and that conflates Nigerian experiences and Haitian experiences with Southern descendants of slaves' experiences. I mean, I think we need, we need to think of ourselves in much more specific and also more universal ways at the same time. So I think that in, we deal with the society that we're in, and we try to be anti-racist and recognize how race is made and how it affects people, but we also have to keep an eye on um, a future that we would like to create, and that can't just be made by being anti-racist. That, that requires us to be actually anti-race, because 
racism creates race and not the other way around. So you can't get rid of racism but adhere to the categories that racist thinking produces. Right, but there are still places where you're going to be treated like a black person, right? There are. I mean, race is created locally. In France, I'm off, where I live in Paris, I often am treated as though or assumed to be um, an Arab until, until I open my mouth and then it's understood that I'm American and my primary identity is national and not racial and people don't really know what my racial background is. But back in America, certainly if I'm with my father, because oftentimes the people you're around also um, influence the way that you're racially perceived. If I'm with my father or with some black friends, my, my race is, is produced not just by how I think of myself, but how society reflects its preconceptions back on me. So I, I have to understand how I'm raced in society, but I don't think that I have to allow society's assumptions to determine what I think of myself and, and, and what I think of what I want the yeah. future to be. So just to try to find out where this leads us, what do you think about affirmative action then? Um, well, I don't. Affirmative action is quite complicated. I think that uh, certainly there are many people that deserve to have um, chances, and I think that that's oftentimes not a question that is best answered by getting into um, oversimplistic ideas of race. I think that oftentimes, in my experience in universities, you'll meet um, black and Latino students that are um, certainly. Um, filling boxes, uh, racial boxes, but in terms of class, um, it, you're not necessarily addressing the class inequality that exists in the black community by allowing a, a black son of doctors and lawyers into your Ivy League school. I think that there are many more specific ways that we can address inequality that would have to um, do more than just look at racial markers. I also think that, um, that, that, that reparations would go a long way towards helping some of this. So I think that you know, I'm very persuaded by Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument that there must be an inquiry and a study of, of, of what kind of um, systems of reparation might make sense for a population. Well, that surprises me. Really... If you want to eliminate race, you, but you would be in favor of reparations based on race? I don't think it's based on race. I think it's based on a specific group of people having undergone a specific condition uh-huh. in American society, which was slavery and then, um, and then Jim Crow. But I don't, I don't think that that – I mean, if race – Race wouldn't make sense because race would lump in a Haitian or a, a descendant of Jamaicans or Nigerians. But I'm talking about a specific group of people, not all blacks, but people that pass through a social circumstance. Really? So, so this, would require, this would require you to assemble a, a pretty robust family tree to decide who is eligible then? I, it would be a very complicated undertaking. And, I, you know, I, I don't – you know, my son, who could – blend into Swedish society would technically be a descendant of American slaves, but I don't think that, I don't know that he would necessarily need to have reparations, but I think someone like my father is pretty clear cut. He's 82 years old. He was um, an adult before civil rights and he was locked out of the real estate market in ways that are still pretty easy to measure. Yeah, that's right. That's true. When uh, redlining was, was uh, prominent, oh, yeah. you could certainly trace that. Um, oh, yeah. What about, well, what about Native Americans? I mean, there's where you, you have your ultimate oh, I mean, I, Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I think that Serious conversations about reparations are, are, are very much a way that we could work towards hopefully one day transcending race. Uh, I think people have, do have to be made whole. Do you um, think that would transcend race or would that make it worse? Because now we're talking about paying people based, if not strictly on race, certainly on their, on their family history. And that would probably, I mean, none of that would be going to white people or certainly people of not- European descent, right? No, but I mean, maybe that might exacerbate racial tensions and there might be some resentment. But I think that when people are doing better, when everybody lives more equally, racial um, differences become less salient. The place that I've 
seen race matter the least. And this is a very rarefied place. I spent a week on Martha's Vineyard, and I've never seen less racial tension. And I came away wondering if that was not because everybody was pretty much doing well. Um, mm-hmm. The more people are doing well, the more I think that we might be able to transcend some of this kind of division. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of it seems to be about class. I mean, I'll tell you. A lot of it does. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm trying to decide, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk and it's uh, dark because I come to work pretty early in the morning. I'm trying to decide who to be afraid of. Um, a, I, I'd be much more apt to um, cross to the other side of the street rather than pass by a, a rumpled, disheveled white man than an impeccably dressed black man, for example. I mean, that that's the kind of thing that, don't you think most of us look at that? Um, unfortunately, I think that some people, uh, I, I, I'm, I side with you in that assessment, but I think that there are some people that have ingested stereotypes to such a degree that, you know, racism is a perceptive error. It kind of, it, it, you don't see what's actually in front of you. You see a stereotype or a myth. Um, so some people probably would pass by a black lawyer and feel frightened. Um, but yeah, I think that the actual threat has a lot less to do with race uh, than it does to do with, with, with class markers and, and, and social situations that um, don't have much to do with blood and skin and genes. So I'm curious, how, how has the, the thesis of your book gone down among your, your black audience? So it's been divided, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, there's a kind of criticism that comes my way, which uh, has to do with something along the lines of, I don't want to parse, like, of course, race is a social construct, but what we really need to know is, 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 is which side you're on. And so there's, there's a feeling sometimes that uh, questioning the existence of race is somehow also questioning the existence of racism. So I try to go to great lengths to show that I'm not dismissing the fact that racism is real and it really does affect people um, who are designated as black in the society in, in ways that are very serious. But I don't think that that alone is a, is a reason to double down on the identity that you've been um, forced into. Uh, I think that it, 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 I try to make the case as persuasively as I can that it's, it, it, that is reason enough for black people to seriously question these categories mm-hmm. and to see how we could possibly um, do away with them. So if somebody – so what do you say to somebody who insists on calling you black or identifying – you know, as, so as a black man, how do you feel about this? Do you, do you push back at that? I think that oftentimes it's been that people say, well, you're not really black to begin with, or, well, you have, your skin is extremely light, or, or there's all these things where it's more, I've had very few people force me into the black box, and many more people say that um, you were barely in the black box, uh, so that's why your, your argument is dismissed now. Yeah. But if someone were to force me, into, if a racist were to insist that I had to be black, I mean, I, the, 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 the argument I use in the book is that I, you can't allow society's perception of you to define you. Um, if I were to do that in France, I would, I would accept that I was, that I was a Muslim because mm-hmm. that's how I can be typically yeah. misconstrued. What about white people who don't want to be white people anymore? Because uh, I was noticing... We need, we need that. We <laughs> really do need that. None of this works if white people don't also um, begin to accept how and understand how they've been raised in the society and then to and then to reject that, too. Um, white people have to step out of whiteness if we're ever going to um, transcend racism and race. Well, how do you do that? I mean, uh, I remember I did a, a brief commentary on this 
because one time I just Googled white in uh, Google. There is mm-hmm. there is no positive term that comes up in association with white anymore. It's a, it's nationalist <laughs> supremacist. Unless you go to some dark corners of yeah. the, of the internet. Yeah. 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 So, but I don't. But I don't know what to call myself other than that. I mean, a, a combination of what, uh, German slash Italian, mostly suburban American. You know, it gets complicated. It gets complicated. But I think that we gloss over what makes us complicated. What makes us what makes us unique. But that that's to our own detriment. I mean, monoracial whiteness um, is not that old. Even you know, it's 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 less than a hundred years old that that Jews, Italians. Wasps, Germans, and some Latinos have been lumped together as a kind of as a kind of monolith, and I think that it'd be good to unpack that again. But the problem with whiteness has been, that, especially in like older generations, whiteness has been kind of conceived as this kind of invisible non-race, this 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 norm from which everything else is a kind of deviation. Um, so white people feel as though they don't have race, and so uh, white people have to actually understand the ways in which they they have a racial identity. Um, and think hard about race. I mean, I, sometimes I'll see comments to my work where a, a, a white commenter will say, well-meaning, you know, this is interesting, but I don't know what I could possibly say because I'm white. I don't have, I don't have race. I don't have a race. Yeah. You know, people actually say that. And I think we have, to, we have to get into that conversation. And one way you get into that is understanding how recently monoracial whiteness has been made. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think white people are actually skittish about bringing up the subject of race at all because they don't know how they can possibly come out ahead <laughs> by even well, bringing it up. I mean, a lot of well, I mean, white people have also just or, or, or not even well-meaning have, have, have learned to kind of keep quiet because it's the losing hand to, to draw attention to the way that you're raised in the society and the, and the, and the privilege you're assumed to have. Um, but we need these conversations. So I don't think that unlearning race means we don't talk about race. I think it means we talk about it more, but we try to talk about it. Uh, more critically and subversively. Yeah. Okay. Well, so far we've sort of shied away from what. Uh, well, I guess we mentioned affirmative action. But is there is there something that uh, politicians and government should be doing about this? We've passed all sorts of legislation over the years. Of course, it has helped somewhat. I'm not going to say that things are like they were a hundred years ago, but the tension obviously is still there. So is this just a matter of? everybody trying to do the right thing on their own, or does there have to be some sort of leadership here? Well, there's different things. I think that um, this this book is an argument for a kind of imaginative labor that has to happen, um, and it's not a policy book. I think that we actually cannot just simply stumble into a better future that we cannot first envision. So we have to imagine a world beyond race if it's ever going to come to pass. Where I live in France, the government, for example, has stricken the word race from the Constitution, from official legal documents. They don't recognize that race exists. But of course, French society still is affected by by real racism. So my suggestion is not that tomorrow the U.S. government simply strike all racial language, and that will cure the problem. But I do think that real policies, such as policies that um, that lead to material equality, some form of reparations, um, serious uh, affirmative action that doesn't just target the already well-to-do um, symbolic members of oppressed minorities, but actually um, addresses class inequality that oftentimes has a racial component. These things, I think, would go a long way. But we also have to do this imaginative work that prepares us to let go of um, that prepares us to let go of racial categories once racism is addressed. So, would you recommend intermarriage? 
I, I, I do. I don't. I don't. I don't want to mandate it, but I certainly do think that it's much diff- more difficult to hate people um, that you have experience around um, intimately uh, than than it is to hate people that you that you don't know and you view from afar. So, one thing that I think really mattered in the life of someone like President Obama, and it certainly mattered in my own life, was that. I grew up with both black people and white people who loved me and who I loved. So it was difficult for me to make enormous generalizations about how either white people or black people act. Um, A lot of white people and a lot of black people don't really interact with each other intimately. We still live in an intensely segregated society, informally segregated. So I think that the more that our lives intersect and bump up against each other, and hopefully on equal terms, that that would also do a lot to get us past these kind of, these kind of, tragic misunderstandings that we have based around color. Yeah, and so and so what role do you see for racial justice organizations like the NAACP? I mean, I would wouldn't it, it would be wonderful if we didn't need um these organizations, but we're certainly not at that point now. I mean, the the danger is that um there's a way that these kind of problems can be presented as though they're eternal and so you can never get a solution, so struggle never has an end point, uh, never recognizes an end point. And, and, I, and I think that also does a lot to reify um, these categories and keep them salient. And I think we, so I would like to get to a point where we don't need those organizations, but we're certainly a long way from there now. Do you think those organizations, because this is the charge that's been made, that they are deliberately trying to keep the struggle going because their existence depends on it? I, I wouldn't say that about the NAACP, but there are certainly, there are, commentators, pundits, writers, activists who, whether cynically or earnestly, um, are invested in division. That's absolutely the case. There, 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 there are people that are invested in um, tribalizing the discourse. So, and, and, and why this is so tragic is that one group's intensifying tribal feelings necessarily strengthen tribal feelings in another group. So identity politics and, and racism, this is a sword anybody can pick up and use. So my book is making the argument that someone has to move first, someone has to, has to de-escalate, um, and we all have to keep our, our eye on the kind of transcendent uh, humanism that, 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 that unites as opposed to divides. There certainly are um, activist organizations and, and, and thinkers on the left who, who re-racialize issues or, or, or intensify those feelings. Yeah. Absolutely. And, of course, I have to ask you about uh, the president. The there is some feeling he also, that he also intensifies those feelings. <laughs> well, but I mean, there there's a theory that the reason Trump was elected was because of Obama, and that uh, uh, Obama was such a shock to people and wasn't able to create a post-racial America. Not that he thought he ever could. That uh, the people reacted by at least in part uh, electing Donald Trump. Do you buy into that? And and uh, does who the president is matter in terms of achieving this ideal that you're looking for? I absolutely, in my own unscientific observations, but in my own family, on my mother's side, um, some of the people who voted for Trump, there was absolutely a kind of um, visceral backlash to, to, to Obama. And these are people that are um, well-meaning and would consider themselves not to be racist, but um, just observing them from the transition from Bush into Obama and back into Trump, they were reacting against uh, 
against this kind of symbol in the White House that, that unnerved them in some way. So I absolutely believe that Trump was a kind of reaction for a segment of the white population, a direct reaction to, to um, a perceived loss of status or a changing America that made them feel no longer at home. Absolutely. And I do think that Thankfully, uh, hopefully, uh, the Trump era will end, whether it ends in 2020 or 2024, it will end, and, we'll, and the country will move on. And I do think that so long as um, a kind of uh, racial antagonist, really is what I would call him, uh, occupies the White House, I do think that it's difficult to de-escalate the, the racial conversation. When, when the president says there's fine people on both sides of Charlottesville, I think that, that of course, that intensifies... Uh, um, the debates we're trying to get past. So uh, I think a lot of good would come simply from Donald Trump leaving the White House. Absolutely. Yeah. So are your own family Thanksgivings friendly affairs <laughs> when you all get together? <laughs> <laughs> um, those Thanksgivings, we, I, they don't really, we don't actually all get together around the Thanksgiving table. The, 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 the virtual Thanksgiving table was Facebook. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where a lot of these political conversations first um, became apparent to me, and I realized that some of my extended family, I realized what they really thought about Obama, and then I realized what they were supporting when they were supporting Trump. And that's kind of, um, Facebook was the way that I got to know members of my family. Uh, um, I didn't know their political views prior to Facebook. So I actually have pulled back from Facebook. I find that we, there, there, there has been no good way to talk about these things. And I, to be honest, I've lost... Um, a couple of relationships. I lost my relationship with my uncle and with a cousin because we simply couldn't um, reconcile, or they actually couldn't reconcile um, their own feelings about Trump with my objections to them. Yeah. Thomas Chatterton Williams is the author of Self-Portrait in Black and White. He's a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Thomas, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here, in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe, so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe, and then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.